Praise the Lord. And let's begin with prayer. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you're doing. And I ask that you will bless uh, this series in your word and all those who hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get into the word of God tonight. Now, we are veering off, and I know that some of you probably preferred that we stayed with the parables, but we want to veer off a little bit um, because, partly because of what's happening, happening in Israel. And because when I woke up to finalize things with thy word, which I generally do on Monday, I kind of go through things, I do some edits, um, the Lord led me somewhere else. So for those of you who are students of thy word going all the way back to Genesis, this will not be new to you, at least not tonight. After this, it will all be new to you because I've never discussed it yet in thy word. But I've always learned that it's good to repeat when you're teaching something, especially the Word of God, uh, it's good to say it more than once in different ways, and it's good to hear it more than once in different ways in order to get a full understanding of that. So if I do repeat something you've already learned, may it go deeper uh, into your soul. And a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, in fact, I'm going to tell you everything that we are going to be talking about tonight is a Ricky Taylorism. All right? He's clapping over there. What, and what that means is, this is my view. And it doesn't have to be your view. You don't have to believe any of this to be saved, uh, nor do you have to believe any of this necessarily to be right. I don't like to say that I'm right. I'm a student of the Word of God. I'm digging in the Word of God, and every once in a while I will find something in there that I have never seen before and this is one of those things but i don't want you to think 100 percent this is correct this is just the way that i see it now anything that i say i will try to support by the scripture and then you can evaluate what i say according to the scripture to see if the scripture is agreeing with what i say is that fair and we're going to do that because this time we're going to get into the history of israel specifically jerusalem and then the next time we come together, we're going to get into the time of Christ and then what happened after the time of Christ and then hopefully into future events that we know will happen. Israel is God's timepiece. And if you keep your eye on Israel, in fact, then we will know what is happening. We will begin to understand where we are in the last days. Now, I do not believe that anyone knows when the Lord is returning. I don't believe that anyone has a perfect grasp on the prophecies. Um, I've been around long enough. I'm 52 years old, and I remember in 1988 when all the churches locked themselves into, uh, into their respective houses of worship and waited for the Lord to come because Edgar the Great wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Come in 1988. And I, I want to say this as a precursor because we will be talking about prophecy as we go. That book of prophecy, and I read it two or three times. I was about 16 or 17 years old at the time. Well, I would have been 17 in 1988. And I read it two or three times, and I'm telling you it was ironclad. It was a wonderful document and thesis on prophecy that just seemed to have to be correct. And I wasn't the only one with that view, obviously, because Christians all over the country were charging up those credit cards thinking they wouldn't have to pay the bill. And that's the way it went. Well, uh, September 1988 came and went, which is when he said the Lord would come back during Rosh Hashanah. 
the the head of the year, the the Jewish New Year, and he didn't come. And the interesting thing about that, and I had this thought at that age, had he said that the Lord would come back in September of, say, not 1988, but 2088, and he gave those as the reason why, we would still believe, many of us would still be completely convinced, by God, according to Edgar the Great, and that wasn't his name, I just can't remember his last name, his first name was Edgar, but according to Edgar the Great, the Lord is coming back. In 2088, and we would argue with each other, and if anyone who disagreed with it would argue with the person who agreed with it, and we would form sects and denominations and everything all about the teaching of Edgar the Great, because by God you could tell he was right. But can I tell you, he was wrong. And really the blessing in this is that he was wrong. And so I was able to look at what a prophecy teacher believes compare it to the scripture, find no real fault in it, but I knew it was wrong because I was still here in 1989. Do you understand? So what I'm trying to say is let's not spend too much energy on future prophecies. Let's not spend too much time trying to figure things out, especially things that the Lord has decided to keep to himself. The times and the seasons are not for you. That's what Jesus said. The times which the Father has in his own power are not given to you. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me. So what's our job? It's not to, not to try to find out what God is going to do next on the big prophecy scale in the world. Our job is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and spread his word and be his witnesses. It's not to fight each other over, over uh, some kind of uh, doctrine of prophecy, but to love one another and grow as Christians as we should. And, and to fight over prophecy, to spend much, too much time on prophecy, can become an error and it can, be, and it can certainly lead to deception. But to ignore prophecy is to ignore the word of God. You understand? And I've used this analogy before, and then I'm going to jump into this and get, uh, get started, but I'm going to use this analogy one more time. I can imagine in the time before Jesus was born, three sects of Jews. Now, I'm not saying they actually existed, but I can imagine it, and I think you could imagine it with me. One sect says about the, the uh, Messiah that the Messiah is coming from Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And the other sect says, no, no, no. The Bible says clearly that he will be born in Bethlehem. And then the other sect, no, no, no. He shall be called a Nazarene. And they fight each other over this doctrine. Right? And, and they, they use their scriptures and they, they get angry at each other and they study and they write books and the whole deal. And then finally Jesus comes. And he's born in Bethlehem. And then he goes to Egypt. And then he comes back. And he lives in Nazareth and is called a Nazarene. And there's no way they could have known this. Beforehand, until it actually happened, they could not have known how that prophecy would play out. Do you understand? So be very careful about being right. There is a time in my life, much of my life, where my desire was to be right. But now my desire is only to be right with God. Well, that's not true. My desire should only be to write with God. I'm still a carnal man and I still wrestle with that. Amen. And I believe that many of us do. 
But right now, as, as we're talking, there's a terrible unrest and war uh, in Israel. And Israel is a tiny nation. It's approximately the size of the county of San Diego. And yet there's so much trouble in the world today over this nation. As I speak, Israel is being attacked by a group of terrorists and is responding to the attacks with its warriors, with its army. Israel and the people of Israel have been hated and treated in the most abhorrent ways by the world. And we all know because, you know, Adolf Hitler was not that long ago. World War II was not that long ago. We remember the Holocaust and what happened to the Jews during that time. Uh, they've been hated. They've been maligned. They've been persecuted. They've even been put to death and with an attempt of exterminating them. Uh, they have been hated by every nation surrounding them. And the main issue is Jerusalem, the holy city, which is the true capital of Israel. And my question is why? Why Jerusalem? And I want to share with you the history of this place called Jerusalem. Now, Israel is a nation that is built on a promise that God gave to Abraham 4,000 years ago or so. God made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. His promise was both physical and spiritual. Physical because God promised Abraham that he would have children and that they would possess all the land of Canaan. Uh, and it was spiritual because uh, one of the seed of Abraham would bless the entire world. And this was a prophecy about the Messiah, the Savior of mankind who would come through the lineage of Abraham. But allow me to be controversial for a moment. You see, I believe the history of Jerusalem started long before Abraham, long before the land of Canaan. I believe it started in the beginning. Now, when I say in the beginning, for you thy word students, what do you immediately think of? Genesis. Bereshit. And I believe that Jerusalem, Yer Shalom, which is a equivalent to the word the city of peace, Yer Shalom, Yerushalayim, started uh, way back in the beginning. And the major players in the drama were present in the beginning. The drama that's being played out right today in front of your eyes were present in the beginning. It is nothing new. The first player in the drama was God. God created the heavens and the earth, and God created a garden. The next players in the drama are humankind. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. The next player was Satan, the old serpent, the deceiver. And I believe this drama unfolded in the very place we call Jerusalem today. I want that to settle with some of you, okay? I believe that this drama in Genesis chapter 1 happened in the very place we call Jerusalem today. Now, like I said, it is a Ricky Taylorism, and you, of course, do not have to agree. But I believe that Jerusalem today is the original location of the Garden of Eden. That's what I believe. I came to this conclusion after a Bible class I was giving and I was thinking about why God 
would have chosen Jerusalem as the one place on planet Earth that he would directly connect to his name. As 1 Kings 11.36 reads, And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. Now David didn't choose that city. Abraham didn't choose that city. God chose that city. And the question I had was, why did God choose that place to put his name out of every place on the earth? God chose to put his name in Jerusalem. And we see unfolding in the Bible, what we see unfolding is not an accident. You see, God had already chosen the place. And then after he chose the place, he chose a people who would inhabit that place. God chose the land. Then he chose Abraham. You see, God had a purpose for the land, not just for Abraham. Uh, so once again, while teaching a Bible class on the book of Genesis, much like we do in thy word, though it wasn't called that, uh, we were studying the fall of man. And my eyes fell on one word, and that word is east. And we find it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, which reads, So he drove out the man... And he placed cherubim. Now, cherubim are what's on the Ark of the Covenant. They are uh, angels, for lack of... Lack, they're not, not actually called angels in the Bible, but we see them as angels, as winged creatures at the east of the Garden of Eden. And they are what surround the throne of God. We see that in Ezekiel. And these are what you call the four beasts in the King James Version that we see in the book of Revelation. They surround the throne of God. They are mighty creatures. Um, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As my eyes fell on the word east, several other scriptures began to flow through my mind. God was giving me a Bible study while I was still teaching. I'll never forget it. It just started coming to me and I thought, you know, something is happening here, but I need to continue to teach. But I had this Bible study given to me. I felt by the Spirit of God before I was actually done teaching uh, that part of Genesis that night. But uh, uh, other scriptures begin to flow through my mind. In various parts of the book of Ezekiel, we see the glory of God entering Jerusalem, moving from the east. And we see the glory of God departing from the temple, going to the east. God entered Jerusalem. He departed Jerusalem eastward. And when Jesus returns... He will return to Jerusalem, entering through the eastern gate. When he returns, he will bring with him his holy saints, which should be you and me, praise God, returning mankind to the paradise lost. In Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, we learn that God sees Jerusalem as the center of the nations. And, and this is important, especially for those of you who had gone through the tabernacle series with us and studied the tabernacle, the different parts of the tabernacle. I want to see if you can see the, the, uh, the parallel here in, in what the Lord is saying. Thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel 5, 5, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. So Jerusalem is the center of all nations. Jerusalem is in Israel, and Israel is in the midst of the nations. 
In the temple, or the tabernacle, there was the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. So this seems to fit a pattern. We can think of the nations of the world as the courtyard. Okay, we remember the tabernacle. You would enter the tabernacle through what? The eastern gate, or the way. It's called the way. You would enter through Haderic, the way. And when you entered the way, you were in the courtyard. And then when you passed the, the altar, the brazen altar, and you passed the laver for washing, you would enter into the holy uh, place. And that would be the first room inside the tabernacle. From there, there was a veil in front of you, and on the veil were cherubim. And then you would enter through the veil, and there was the holy of holies, And the only furniture in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the presence of God dwelt. So it was a three-part pattern. It was the courtyard, it was the holy place, and it was the Holy of Holies. So let's think of the nations of the world. If you'll picture in your mind a map and you have the world as one. And remember in the time of Genesis, the world was one. It wasn't divided. There was one large landmass. And... So you had the earth, and then in somewhere in that, in the middle of that, amongst that, you had Eden. Not the Garden of Eden, you had Eden. Eden was its own place within the earth. And then the Bible says God planted a garden in Eden. So now the Garden of Eden is in Eden. So like the tabernacle, we have three parts. So think of the earth as the courtyard. Think of, of Eden itself as the holy place, and you can think of the garden of Eden in Eden as the holy of holies. Are you with me? And this pattern plays throughout the entire scripture, but this is at the beginning because Jerusalem, according to God, he says he set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. That means she's the center of the earth as far as God is concerned. Jerusalem is the holy of holies of the planet earth. Israel is the holy place of the planet earth and the rest of the earth is the courtyard. It all focuses on Jerusalem and of course in the heart of Jerusalem what was there? It's not there anymore. The temple, the presence of the Lord which of course had its three patterns going all the way to the holy of holies. So are you with me? Okay, praise God. Are you really with me? Okay. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 22. Then the Lord said, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden. There was a veil. On the veil were the cherubim. Okay? And if you were facing that veil, you were facing facing west. Behind you was east. And beyond that veil and the cherubim was the ark in the presence of the Lord. And up on the ark were two more cherubim. It's interesting that we see four cherubim around the, the throne of God, isn't it? 
I want you to picture this image. Adam and Eve are... Uh, did I finish that verse? And he placed cherubim the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So you could no longer go to the Tree of Life. You were kicked out east. You're Adam. Okay, you're kicked out. So I want you to picture this. Adam and Eve are being forced from the Garden of Eden. They look back longingly at their old home. Which way are they going? They're going eastward, aren't they? And they're looking back westward. And what do they see? They see the cherubim with a flaming sword between them at the east of the garden, separating them from where they once walked with God. And beyond them is the animal God had slain to cover their nakedness. That's exactly what you see if you are in the tabernacle, you're in the holy place, and you're a priest, because that's the only way you're going there, and you, or, or a Levite, and you look beyond and you see the veil. You see the cherubim, and beyond that is the presence of God, but now you are separated. The cherubim have separated you from the presence of God. Okay? So in the book of Exodus, God commanded Moses to construct the tabernacle. This was a place where God would dwell with his people. And I've already talked about the tabernacle being a courtyard with a gate at the east entrance. And how you would enter the tabernacle and uh, through the way of the east. And you would find yourself in the holy place where the priest would minister. And the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Now the only one who could go beyond that veil was the high priest himself. A regular priest could not do it. The high priest would go beyond that veil once a year and he would offer a sacrifice, the blood of the, of, of the offering on Yom Kippur, uh, which is the Day of Atonement. And this is where the presence of God dwelt. And upon the ark was the blood of the sacrifices God required as sin offerings. And we, mankind, was separated from the Holy of Holies. So... Looking back at the Garden of Eden in the light of the tabernacle, God met with mankind in the Garden of Eden. The Garden was in Eden. Eden was outside the Garden, and the rest of the earth was outside of Eden. And that means the earth, once again, was divided into three parts, just like the tabernacle. Now, the purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could dwell with his People. It was not like it was in the Garden of Eden. Man was separated by sin, but the tabernacle represented God's first step in restoration, in restoring mankind to the fellowship that he had with man in the Garden of Eden. It's always about God restoring us. He wants to give us back what we lost. But when he gives us back what we lost, it's going to even be better than it was before. We'll no longer just be soulish creatures in a body of flesh. We're going to be spiritual creatures in a spiritual body. And it won't just be Garden of Eden in the natural, but it's going to be something far greater and far better than even what we had originally. And this is the reason Jesus came, to restore the fellowship God had with man and man had with God. The cherubim guarded the way. They guarded the way to the tree of life. They guarded the way to the presence of God. And I do not believe it was a coincidence that Christians were first called 
followers of the way. We were the followers of the way back to God. We are in the way, the way to eternal life. And it is my belief that he is also restoring Eden and the Garden of Eden. Now I want to remind you, and it's one of the verses that we use quite a bit in thy word. Proverbs 25 and verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. You see, God does not tell us everything openly. I challenge you to turn to the chapter on baptism that tells us how, step one, step two, step three, step four, how to baptize. And for what reason we're doing it. It's not in the scripture, is it? We have to dig it out. We have to see what the apostles uh, did. We have to see what the writers of the epistles had to say about it. And then we put it together. We have to dig it out. It's concealed in the scripture. And we search out the matter. You understand? So God you also uses types. He uses shadows. He uses patterns throughout the Bible that he has placed there for us to discover larger truths. As he said in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. So a similitude is a comparison between two things or a type. God uses types all throughout the scriptures. The entire Bible is a type. I'm telling you, everywhere, even the things that Jesus did, the things that he said were wonderful. And many of the things he said were prophetic. But the actions that he took were equally types, shadows, prophecy fulfilled and prophecy to come. That's how God wrote the scripture. And it's up to us to look for these similitudes, to dig it out, to seek out the, the further truth that God has for us. And... In my opinion, God has done that here with the structure of the tabernacle. There's a clear pattern, clear types on display, all pointing to the original location of the Garden of Eden. Now, I want to turn your attention to Ezekiel chapter 28. And this is a passage of scripture concerning the king of Tyre. And remember, we're talking about Eden. So, But I'm going to use this scripture and show you what the Bible says about it. And this king is identified as one... And he was an actual king. See, this is another way the scripture works. It'll speak about something in the natural while it's also speaking about something uh, in the supernatural. All at the same time. It'll speak about something that's about ready to happen. And then it's speaking about something that will happen in the future. And you have to seek it out to find it. Now, this king is identified as one who had been in Eden, the garden of God, and was perfect in his ways from the day that he was created till iniquity was found in him. Now, this is obviously not referencing only the human king of Tyre at that time, but it was making reference to a spiritual force behind the throne of the earthly king of Tyre, the entity we now identify as Satan. Ezekiel shines light uh, on the garden of Eden. Uh, in Ezekiel 28, beginning at verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. 
When? When was he in Eden? We remember, right? He tempted Eve in Genesis chapter 3. So that's where he was. He was in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. I don't want to take too much time, but the serpent in Genesis is called Nechash. And Nechash is a word that means serpent. But Nechoshet, Nechash Nechoshet, means copper. It means shiny. It means fiery. So I don't like a copper-looking snake. I believe that the, the Nechash was a copper-looking snake. You, you see, he wasn't green. He wasn't black. He was copper. But it's interesting that it means shiny. And here we see God saying, every precious stone was your covering. The, he's the shining one, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. He was a musician. Think about that when you think about the music that's out there in the world. And you watch some of these. I don't know if you've seen it. You can go on YouTube, whatever. You can watch some of the music that's being displayed out there. And sometimes you feel like you're in some kind of witchcraft ritual, don't you? He was a musician. And he's still involved in music. I want you to think about that as a child of God. And when you're, when you're enjoying something, let it not be one of his works. Amen. Let's be holy unto the Lord. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Once again, he's a cherubim. He's anointed. He covered. What did he cover? You know, we always see the four cherubim. I think there was a fifth. And I think he was the capstone of all of it. He covered the throne of God. He was right there with God. I established you. And now get this. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were in Eden. You were on the holy mountain of God. Okay? You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stone. Now, besides the created animals that we read about in Genesis, the scripture only records three beings as dwelling in Eden. Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And the scripture is clear in identifying the serpent. Revelations 22, 20 and verse 2 says, And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan. The Nakash is the devil and Satan. In context with placing Satan in the Garden of Eden, Ezekiel 28 also makes reference to the holy mountain of God. And in the study of Scripture, one usually finds that the Scripture identifies itself. And we find that it defines what and where the holy mountain of God is. The prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, is praying on behalf of the people. And he makes reference to God's holy mountain. Daniel 9 and verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. Your holy 
mountain. You were in Eden. You were in the holy mountain. You were in Eden. You were in the holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. The holy mountain of God is the city Jerusalem. It's the same place. And the devil was in both places, according to, uh, according to Ezekiel. So here we have showing that the, the mountain of God and Jerusalem are the same place. And this becomes very important as we continue in the scripture. The prophet Isaiah identifies Jerusalem using the same terminology in Isaiah chapter 6, 66 and verse 20. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations on horses and in chariots and in litters on mules and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. So this further affirms my belief that Jerusalem, the holy mountain of God, and the Garden of Eden are one and the same in the mind of God. And I think the evidence is too strong to overlook. Now, I know many try to place Eden elsewhere. Uh, they use the river in Eden that flowed into four rivers as a point of reference, but there's an error in this. And the error is what happened in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. And that is the great flood. There was a great flood that would certainly have changed the entire face of the planet. And also, as we talked about before, the earth was one landmass surrounded by water but is now divided into continents. But still, there is on earth right now a latitude and a longitude where the Garden of Eden once was. And the Lord knows precisely where that is and I believe that place to be Jerusalem. Now, I'm saying that why? Because to understand Jerusalem, we have to understand what it means to God. Why does God care so much about this city? And, on, and then again, why does Satan care so much about this city? And see, it's a city that Christians should understand, and we should also care about what's happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And to further my argument for Jerusalem being the Garden of Eden, let's consider the purpose of the gospel, which is to de deliver man from the curse of sin and restore him to God. But man is not the only one under the curse. The animal kingdom, nature, the world itself is under the curse. And we are waiting for the restoration of all things. Peter preached in Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who is preached to you before, whom heaven must receive. So heaven has received Jesus, and heaven is going to keep him there until the times of restoration of all things, and uh, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The purpose is to restore everything. And like I said, to restore it better than it was before. He is restoring all things. He's restoring that which was lost and stolen. He re he's restoring us. He purchased us with the blood of Jesus Christ. And he will restore the earth and all of nature, redeeming it from the curse. And one of the things 
to be restored as the Garden of Eden, only it will be far better than the original. Now, when Jesus comes again, he will set his foot on the Mount of Olives. And this is right outside the eastern gate. It's eastward from Jerusalem. And he will enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate. So as man was removed from the Garden of Eden and cherubim were placed on the eastward part of Eden to keep man out, Jesus will enter the eastern gate preparing the way for man to return. In other words, he will restore what sin took from him. And we see in Genesis, uh, in the Garden of Eden, there is a river. And we see the tree of life. We see the same thing in the New Jerusalem descending out of heaven in Revelation chapter 21, verse 9, which reads, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Who's the bride of Christ? Us. Us. The church, right? And like I said, we're going to be something far greater. We're that mustard seed, like we were talking about before, that is put into the ground and becomes something so much greater than a mustard seed. We don't, even, we can't even imagine what we're actually going to become. Just like a mustard seed could no, could not imagine being that tree, or an acorn could no, could not imagine ever becoming that great oak, and yet we're going to become something. Incredible, And I, the Bible says, I have I not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it in, entered into the heart of man. Which means if I can imagine it and you can imagine it, it's going to be better. Amen? So he says, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. I think that's why the devil hates us. We become the shining ones, don't we? Notice the new Jerusalem will be where Jerusalem is today. And the angel showed John the new Jerusalem from the viewpoint of a great and high Mountain. The angel shows John more concerning the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now we remember that in the Garden of Eden, there was a river flowing from Eden. In the midst of the garden was the tree of life. And we see the same thing, but on a grander scale here in Revelation 22. In the new Jerusalem, which will be where Jerusalem is, is today there will be a river of water of life and the tree of life on each side of the river. It must be a very large tree. Now Jerusalem, uh, or New Jerusalem, is the Garden of Eden restored. And it will be restored in the same location where God had originally placed it. So if my supposition is true, that Jerusalem and the Garden of Eden are one and the same, it sheds a lot of light on what is truly happening today concerning 
Jerusalem. You see, there is a war being fought over God's holy city, the current site of Jerusalem and the original site of the Garden of Eden. Satan usurped the authority of this world from Adam, but the restoration of all things is coming. Satan will do everything in his power to stop it. He hates the people of Jerusalem. He hates the people of Israel. He hates the church. And he will do everything in his power to stop the restoration of all things. He wants to be worshipped as God in the temple of God. He wants Jerusalem, the Garden of, of Eden, the holy mountain of our God, for himself. And I believe that that is the underlying reason for all the trouble in Jerusalem and for all the trouble that the Jews have suffered. When God called Abraham, there was a specific place that God promised to give him as a possession for his descendants, and that was the land of Israel. And we remember that he tested Abraham's faith by commanding him to sacrifice his son Isaac. It was on a crest of Mount Moriah within the land later to be known as Jerusalem. And I believe it was where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil once stood in the Garden of Eden. I believe this. You don't have to believe it. But I believe, you, you have to understand that God chose the place. He said, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and go to a place that I'm going to show you, a mountain that I will show you. And he went three days' journey to the mountains of Moriah. God chose the place. And it is my understanding that Jesus was hung on a tree, the cross, as an atonement for sin. Near the very spot, Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, bringing sin into the world. The atonement for sin was made. The redemption for sin was paid in the very spot where Adam and Eve first disobeyed. That rhymed, didn't it? That did that naturally. I thought I'd keep it. Hallelujah. But God gave Abraham, and I'm going to finish here soon, but God gave Abraham a son named Isaac. Isaac's birth was miraculous because Abraham and Sarah, his wife, were barren and very old. And God commanded Isaac to go to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice his only son. I'm not going to read the scripture, sister. Uh, but, but Abraham was obedient to God, and he brought his son to that place to offer him as a sacrifice to God by faith, knowing God would raise him from the dead. When God gave his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Redeemer, he was sacrificed as the Passover lamb outside the gates of Jerusalem on the same crest of the mount where Abraham had bound Isaac to sacrifice him. God is a God of patterns and similitudes. And this was a similitude in the life of Abraham of what God would do in the future. People ask the question, why would God uh, uh, condone human sacrifice? He didn't. He was uh, using a prophet. Abraham was a prophet. And he was using his life as a drama to play act what would happen 2,000 years later in that very spot that God would give his son, his only begotten son. 
And a thousand years after Abraham made the three-day journey with Isaac to the place that is now called Jerusalem, King David captured that same area, which was then a Jebusite city named Jerusalem, and he made it his capital and reigned in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to close with this. I was hoping to get a lot further, and we will get into the future prophecies, but we're not going to have time tonight. But can I say that it is no coincidence that in the area that is now Jerusalem, Abraham had many generations before drawn the knife to slay his son Isaac. And it is no coincidence that upon that very spot, King Solomon built the first temple of God, which is made after the pattern of and to replace the tabernacle, where sacrifices were made for the sins of Israel and where the Passover lamb was to be slain every year. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, God placed his name there. And he chose to dwell there in the Holy of Holies. It was not a coincidence he had chosen Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city of the great king. As the psalmist says in Psalms 132, verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Does that sound like God is done with Jerusalem? God is going to dwell there forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priest with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. That's Jesus. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. That's Jesus. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But upon himself his crown shall flourish. So Jesus is God's chosen dwelling place on planet earth and it is for that reason that there's a war happening right now now i'm not saying that war itself is prophetic but i'm going to tell you this when jesus comes and we will get to that later when jesus comes when he comes back and set his to set his foot on the mount of olives he is coming to jerusalem because Jerusalem is in absolute danger and peril and is mostly wiped out. He is waiting for them to call him. And when they call to him, he will come and he will destroy the enemies of Israel, which at that time will be pretty, the entire world gathered around uh, Jerusalem to completely and utterly destroy her. And what you're seeing here is a prelude. It's how it's going to begin. There will never be peace in Israel. Not as long as she is surrounded by her enemies. Because the Bible is going to prove to be true. There will be one man who will broker peace. But when that happens, look out. Because he's not a good man. And I think we all know who that is. And we will be talking about the Antichrist as we go. I hope you, that you've enjoyed this little veering off from the parables. I hope it wasn't too much for you. And for those of you who are in thy word, uh, I think part three. Sorry about the, the repeat. Amen. But God bless you. We love you. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for those who have shown here today. And I ask, I pray for peace 
in Jerusalem, Lord. I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Lord. Your Bible says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I pray for all those who are involved in this war, Lord, for your people, your covenant people, Israel. Lord, that you will open their eyes, that you will open the eyes of the individuals that they might know their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for all, God, who are in this situation, all of the innocent and all of those who have done no wrong, Lord, the children and the innocent, God, that you will put your hand upon them to protect them. And I know that you died for all of us, Lord. You died for the Jew. You died for the Greek. You died for the barbarian. You died for the Gentile, Lord. And I ask that the Palestinians will see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart I